This podcast is made possible by Workiva and U.S. Bank. Hi, this is Jason Liberty, CFO of World Caribbean Cruises Limited, and you're listening to the CFO Thought Leader Podcast. This is episode 409. From Middle Market Media, this is CFO Thought Leader, where we speak to finance leaders about driving change within their organizations. Hi, it's Jack Sweeney. On today's show, we speak to Brian Lantier, a U.S. Naval Academy grad who gave up the cockpit for the C-suite and who is today CFO of EHE, a 104-year-old company that was a pioneer in employee health and lifestyle management. Our discussion with Brian begins after these words from our sponsor. Workiva transforms the way people work through connected reporting and compliance. The facts are, a majority of senior accounting and finance professionals say their financial reporting involves a huge amount of manual work and is inherently error-prone, leading to risk. Risk that's intensified by new business complexities and the changing business climate. Linked data elements, numbers, narrative, and calculations together everywhere you use them. When you change data at the source, it's changed at the destination. Gaining trust in your data and processes is that simple. Join over 3,500 customers who enjoy the benefits of using Workiva by connecting their organizations from record to report. Visit workiva.com slash CFO. Hi, we're speaking with Brian Lantier, CFO of EHE. Prior to joining EHE, Brian was with Wellspring Capital Management, and he was the uh, CFO and Chief Operating Officer of Summit Golf Brands. Brian, welcome. Hi, how are you? We're doing well. I, I want to mention, too, up front here, I think it's an intriguing fact about EAG Brian's uh, company, which we'll be hearing more about in a short while. But I have to confess, I, I thought EHE was yet another healthcare uh, newcomer. Uh, could not be more wrong. This company is over 100 years old. Is that right, Brian? Uh, that's correct. Uh, the business was founded 104 years ago with a, a very uh, impressive staff of folks that were thought leaders in prevention and well and well-being, and uh, really we stayed true to the mission for over 100 years. Although you know, the landscape of medicine has certainly changed, it's a really interesting story. I, I'm, I'm looking forward to exploring that with you. But as always, we want to find out a little more about you and. Uh, 
What were those career experiences, looking back now, that you feel helped prepare you for a CFO role? What would you share with us? Well, it's hard for me uh, not to always go back to kind of my roots and where I started. <clears throat> the, I began my career maybe a little bit atypically for a, a CFO, a science leader. I actually started in the military, uh, attended the U.S. Naval Academy, and served as a naval officer and a helicopter pilot for about eight years, which at its surface seems a whole lot different than what I do now as a, as a science leader in a healthcare business. Um, but the early stages of kind of thinking as a business leader, excuse me, as a, as a military leader um, with a background in, in engineering uh, certainly prepared me to be able to kind of walk the balance between the important aspects of leadership in a CFO role as well as kind of the obvious quantitative aspects of the CFO role. And from after serving for almost nine years, I left the military to pursue a full-time MBA, and that became my translate uh, transition where I really did go very deep in finance, especially recognizing that was the area that the military did not necessarily prepare me for when I, when I first left the Navy. Uh, I didn't know what the, any of the financial statements were, um, and got initially very deep in education. And then took a very kind of a, what I think is an interesting career path to kind of get me where I am today, which balanced, which included being a consultant, being an investment banker, being a interim executive in companies, being a full-time executive, and then being an operating partner in private equity. And the combination of all of those, I think, prepared me really well for my current role uh, at EHE as the chief financial officer. I think it's worth mentioning that from the Naval Academy, you went. Uh, to the Harvard uh, Business School for your MBA. Uh, was it just uh, broadly thinking about finance that led you down that path, or were you really rather uh, still open to all types of opportunities at that point? I love to say that, that the, the path I took in my life was, was laser-focused. Um, I don't know. I think if there was a, a general guiding principle, it was I, I really liked leadership. I had a certain facility with numbers. I think I early on perceived that uh, or recognized that the, the finance function within an organization was very key to it. I think it, I think uh, what, what draws me to the finance function, by the way, in, in both my C-level uh, executive roles, I've, I've ended up wearing both the CFO and the COO hat, which I think is interesting and, and somewhat typical in kind of middle market companies, but there's it's an interesting balance to walk, um, and, and I love it because I think the COO really lends itself to thinking strategically and being focused on leadership and management, which is something that I'm passionate about. And the CFO function is to some extent all about intellectual honesty, and I think that really draws me to it. Um, I always am coming back to kind of what is the what's the, the truth of this, and how do we how do we manage the truth. Um, CFOs, by their nature, have to balance, have to kind of interact with the optimism of the sales leader and the marketing leader and the, the strategic visionaries for an organization while managing the, the, the how, how do we think about the downside risks and how do we think about all the challenges to our business without being negative because, you know, no, no great organization has ever been built by pessimists. And so I think in terms of why was I drawn to it, why did I come into it, I, I think it's just that. I think, you know, even as a you know, as a helicopter pilot, I, I flew you know, 
hundreds of hours in, in uh, the Middle East and throughout Europe, uh, kind of in the early um, months after 9-11, and you're in a situation where if you were cynical and you thought, you know, thought of everything that could go wrong, you'd, you'd frankly never put on your flight suit because the dangers are too great. But if you were reckless and you're not thinking about all the things that can go wrong, you can put yourself and others into a very dangerous situation. In a lot of ways, being a CFO it is like that. And I think that's what kind of draws me to it. I, I, I want to also point out your timing here because the uh, it seems like the financial crisis works. You, as you go back for your MBA, as you enter sort of the private uh, sector, uh, the economy is not doing very well. Did you uh, experience any second thoughts uh, as far as the path uh, you were now embarking on? You know, it's a, it's a really interesting question. Um, you know, with, with now, with, with a few years behind it, I, I kind of laugh about this aspect of my life, and I, and I enjoy it because uh, I think you learn from the hard times a lot. Um, but as I look over kind of my when you're at my age and the path I've taken, it essentially put me in a place where the first time I ever had a few thousand dollars in my pocket, I got to put it into the stock market and, and ride the tech bubble and then watch it burst. So I learned some tough lessons, and some of the early lessons are the, are the cheapest lessons, so I learned some lessons there. Um, then uh, ended up around, you know, around this time finishing up flight school, and frankly, when I was going to the Naval Academy, war seemed a very long way off, and I had just graduated from flight training and gotten my wings as a naval aviator in the spring of 2001, and was finishing up an in-advance training when 9-11 happened. So suddenly there's a major paradigm shift of what it meant to be um, serving in the military uh, and, and what it meant to be deployed. So that was really interesting. And I got to, as a result, as, as challenging as it was for everyone involved, and still is today to those serving, um, I got to uh, really get tested early and have to get smart and do some real, you know, hard thinking about what we were doing. Um, I then left the military uh, in 2007 in, a, in, in the tail end of a robust economy, and the entire paradigm shifted. And frankly, all of the people who had been giving me advice and giving me talking about what a transition from the military looked like, to some extent, that advice was instantly stale because the firms that were eating up military officers were really not hiring or saying, you know, if we're hiring anyone, they better have five years of finance experience, and, and that certainly wasn't me. Um, so I then had to look hard at, you know, what, what, okay, what do I really have to offer? What are the core skills that I can that I can draw upon? Um, and drawing on those core skills, how can I get experience? And the place I actually started was in turnaround, uh, kind of turnaround consulting. Um, and one of the first businesses I got to work with was a private aviation company, a private helicopter company. And what was great about this was. The, the economy did not allow me to put a square peg into a round hole to some extent. It, there, were, there were so few job opportunities in the 2008-2009 time frame. It forced me to say, what do I really do well? Because, frankly, nobody's going to give me an opportunity to do anything else. And by doing that, the path I took allowed me to kind of capitalize on my strengths. And I think that's just so valuable. And, and you know, it's, it's easy to say now as the, as the economy has, has significantly improved, it feels good. But it's one of those times are tough that it really makes you look at kind of what are, you, what are your core skills, what do you really like to do, what do you really want to do. Um, and so as I look at some of my friends um, that, I, that I went to graduate school with, when I look at them, they, a lot of them use that opportunity to say, you know, hey, there's nobody ready to hire me, but I bet what kind of businesses do I want to start? And, and some of the things that have come out of that are just really terrific. 
Well, it's almost uh, 10 years later after the downturn, and you stepped into the CFO office at EHE. What would you tell us as far as the role that uh, you wanted to create for yourself here? Um, you know, one of the things that I, I would say is it's, you know, I'm in a place in my career right now, and especially at EHE, where I love the fact that when I come to work in the morning, I, I rarely even ask the question, what am I after personally, and what's going to do for me, which I don't say that to sound like I'm an altruistic person, and, I, and I'm always, you know, just worried about everybody else, because there's certainly been a lot of my career where I was looking in the mirror saying, you know, how am I going to pay the bills, how am I going to see my career grow, where am I going to be in five years? What I really love about EHE is it's a, I'm, I'm personally in a place, and the company is in a place where when I come to work, I'm really focused on what, is, what direction is this company going, what does the company need, what are, the, what are the places in the organization we need to focus efforts, what are the places we need to invest, what are the things that we need to be doing better. And what's so wonderful about this organization is that we are actually both, we are growing and we are very profitable, and we have a very strong platform. We're properly financed with wonderful investors and all the things you want to have structurally in an investment, especially in this case, private equity owned. It's, it's a really nice place to be. But when, what we actually do is also so valuable. EHE is a national uh, healthcare business focused on prevention. Our clients are largely. Fortune 500 companies that are self-insured that they come to us and say, we have 20,000, 100,000 employees. We we know we want to help these folks focus on prevention and living well. And we want to do it both because it's good for us and it's good for them. And it's an incredible thing to be part of a business that's delivering um, health exams for hundreds of thousands of people throughout the year throughout the country and providing year-round support through a health mentorship program where we're having companies saying this is absolutely terrific. We're, we're, for the first time, we're really seeing the value of what we invest in prevention programs. We're helping them understand what it means to improve healthcare, um, healthcare spending outcomes over, over five, ten years. We're helping them see how they're saving money on their short-term disability, their long-term disability, and absenteeism. And you go on down a list of ways in which we create value that affects the bottom line and makes you know their CFOs happy. But we're also getting letters from employees where testimonials saying, I thought I was in great health, but I came in and I got an exam with the HE. I sat, sat down with Dr. So-and-so. I've never had a physician spend so much time with me. And then when they discovered this thing, thank God, because you saved my life. And I can't even tell you, I almost get goosebumps saying it. We have so many of those stories. It's just an incredible thing. It's an incredible thing to come to work and and feel like I'm moving the needle across all these different metrics of things that matter. Yeah. as I mentioned earlier, I was struck by this being a 100-year-old company, and, and I, I think of preventative uh, programs as something of a 21st century uh, phenomenon. I mean, I, without giving us a whole history here, uh, what was the nature of this company's business when it when it began? You know, I think that it, it's a great question, and uh, even if I wanted to, my history would probably be a little fuzzy on, on all the details. 
the business is growing through new accounts. Um, and then the business is growing you know, through a focus on operational improvements. How do we just make it easier? How do we make the healthcare the system more uh, seamless for the people coming in? How do we make it easier for them to book, easier them to come, easier them to um, want to make prevention part of their life? So it's kind of exciting in all those metrics, and it's clearly growth is is hugely a part of it. And frankly, we have been made big investments. We're continuing to invest. We're investing in new improved office space. We're investing in um, an IT platform that's going to make it easier and easier for people to be engaged. Um, and, and all that is uh, kind of requires growth to support it. Uh, I want to ask you about some of the key metrics that you look at, but I want to just, uh, you mentioned that the company was sold, and uh, I don't have that uh, release in front of me, but was that Summit Partners and private equity firms that acquired the firm? Is that sort of what that chapter was about? Yeah, and you know, it, it, yeah, and it's, a, it's a kind of a, a great story. The company was uh, owned before by 30 years by, um, by essentially a family office, and, you know, and it, they were kind of ready to do other things, and Summit Partners said this company is ready for institutional capital and ready to kind of go to the next level with the benefit of kind of institutional capital guidance from a board that is our board of, our board of directors, um, really spans uh, private equity and healthcare industry, and the combination of those two has really allowed us to get very focused strategically. We have, over the last two years, brought on an incredible senior management team. Uh, the company had a great team to begin with, but it was smaller. We now have a, a very strong senior management team, including a, a CEO who had uh, been a partner in, the, in healthcare at a national uh, accounting and consulting firm. We and has, was also started his career off as an epidemiologist and has just a tremendous amount of understanding of kind of the benefit space and what is the value of prevention. Our chief uh, medical officer is a board-certified allergist and immunologist who was a pioneer in telemedicine and in the kind of startup growth uh, medical businesses. And we can go on down a list of just this incredible team that we put together. That, that we love it because, as we sit around the table, we, we all have very little overlap, actually, in kind of our life path. And together, it's setting us up for terrific growth. And we're, you know, we're at a, you know, the company at the highest level it's ever been in terms of that growth now. So, so help us understand your sort of day-to-day when you're looking at uh, – at the numbers, what are, what metrics are you looking at before your your first cup of coffee in the morning? What are you paying attention to? The one of the things you, you learn is like I see a lot of these, I see a lot of blogs on you know what's the what's the what's the most important metric? You know what's the most you know is, is EBITDA the metric? And for any metric, a smart CFO can explain why that metric is flawed. Um, but you know, in my business, we we look at. Certainly, the number of uh, exams that are that are being done in our different uh, you you can do an, you can do an exam with AHE in over 150 locations. Now, where is where what's the number of exams? How is it compared to history? How is it compared to budget? How are our largest clients performing in terms of those numbers? Because those numbers really do uh, lead directly to revenue. But then we also are looking at uh, NPS scores, which is very big for us. We have one of the things that we've introduced to the company in the last two years is this idea of a net promoter score, and we really want to know what our patients are thinking about um, the experience of the HE, because, well, if, if it doesn't show up in the numbers tomorrow, it's going to show up in the numbers in six months and a year. 
much the corporate customer who's the benefit provider and thinks you're great if the patient that comes in the door does not feel like they're getting second-class health care and they don't feel like they're getting listened to and they're not learning something about their health and wellness, then our business is going to atrophy. That's a, just about the NPS, and it sounds like you were in part one of the champions to get that number more visibility and make uh, it known across the company. Uh, can you share with us? I mean, it's interesting because uh, more and more finance leaders are, are reaching uh, for the NPS and trying to uh, become the champion. How did you bring greater visibility to that number, and who within the organization uh, did you – uh, need on the team, the MPS team, uh, to raise the visibility? You know, I, I hesitate to answer that question only because, you know, the old success of a thousand fathers, I bet there's like a dozen people who would raise their hand and say it was their idea and they would promote proponent of it. The truth is, it, it's almost hard to even answer. I feel like it was something that we knew uh, intuitively with, with, with Almost all of the executives that we hired had some experience with Net Promoter Scores in previous lives. Um, and it was something that we Yes, but here's what I'm getting at. As a finance leader, very often you supply the numbers uh, to the team uh, to provide the snapshot or the visibility they need to understand what you know. And... Uh, I, I'm wondering if suddenly you said, hey, I need to include the MPS number here, or maybe we can include this as part of our uh, conversation with the board, or whatever it might have been. Does anything like that come to mind? You know, it, it, it was now like we've now been looking at MPS scores for at least a year and a half, um, and I'm sure, I don't even remember the first time we put it into a board presentation. Um, I, we, we began kind of creating the surveys, um, about a year and a half ago, and we have been kind of increasing the rollout. And we we know we have over time um, tweaked our methodology, um, and we have you know, we look at the numbers and say, are we are we? It's not there's the question of um, how likely you recommend us, but there's really when you give someone that question in their journey. You know, we're not a restaurant where you're only there for an hour. You do an exam with us, you then get an exam report, you then work with us all year round. So some of the science and methodology we're still looking at to engage, but the numbers, in, it's interesting, and it's almost to some extent like every metric, right? When you first, we first started doing net promoter scores, we were delighted with our net promoter scores. Relative to what the experience you'll have, frankly, a lot of the healthcare industry, especially when they're dealing with insurance companies and all these things, this is, this is not a business of great net promoter scores. And our numbers were were like relative to best in class across industries, um, which made it, which was delightful. Then what happens is, as soon as you know that you're net promoter, you have a net promoter score in the 70s, 80s, suddenly you then say, okay, well, this is what it is. So why did it drop two points? And that's the great place to find yourself when you're a CFO, because now you're focused on a metric that you you know, and that's why, as I said, we've been still tweaking our methodology, because as we've tried to focus on, okay, where is it happening? What are the locations? Who are the individuals involved? How are we administering the, the survey to find out? Is it scientific? And as that has gone, it's, it's, it's almost like a, a Six Sigma process. We're constantly trying to figure out where we can make the improvement to see the numbers come back up. We want to ask you for an aha moment. It's a, it's
it's a moment of strategic insight that you've experienced uh, as a finance uh, leader uh, that led you to change uh, directions, identify a risk, whatever it might have been, but it's sort of your unique lines of sight gave you some strategic insight. Uh, does anything come to mind when I ask for a finance strategic moment? Um, yeah, I think that the, the thing I think about in terms of, it's hard to pinpoint an exact moment, but I've had this come up several times in my career, and I would even maybe point to the first quarter of this year at this company, which is, you know, when things are, when things are going bad, everybody wants to understand why they're going badly, right? You, 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 the phone, especially in your private equity owned, the phone is frequently ringing in the CFO's office to understand what are all the reasons that things are not going well. But when things are going, when things are going well, people are very, like, intent to believe that uh, whatever, whatever narrative is being given for the reasons for success, people are happy to um, get excited about those reasons and, and keep marching. And that sometimes can be as dangerous as when things are not going well. And I think as a CFO and, and something in, in my life that's been important, I kind of mentioned earlier, intellectual honesty, would help us helping to understand why why things were and, and doing just as much analytics on positive outcomes as you would on negative outcomes. And I had an example here where we just had, were having an absolutely extraordinary quarter, and the numbers were, were gangbusters relative to history, relative to uh, relative to budgets. And it would have been very easy to just believe that all every that everything you said you were going to do, you were doing plus ten percent. And what what we did as a finance team, really as a company, I think that really applied intellectual honesty to the situation and and realized that. While a lot of things we said were going to go well, were going well, a lot of them weren't. And some of the things that were, that were driving the numbers were things that we didn't even anticipate. Um, and, you know, and some of them were, were for example, uh, just like a regression to the mean, things that were bad last year that maybe were misbudgeted. Frankly, you, you should have budgeted that better than it was. So that applying that intellectual honesty becomes essential to a business because then when a couple of those things that were maybe happy accidents went away, we were prepared for it as a company. And we were able to say, okay, well, we, we knew, we already had figured out when times were good that this thing that we that, that we wanted to do isn't working and we need to fix it. I mean, I'm, I'm trying to be too specific, but to keep it high level, but that idea of being kind of just as rigorous and trying to understand what's really happening in a very analytical way when times are good as when times are bad, I, I think is just hugely valuable, especially in a growth company. Because it's just too easy to get excited about uh, believing that everything, you're, everything you think you're going to do is working. Okay, we're now going to move to the mentoring round where I get to ask you several quick questions intended to uh, inspire up and coming finance leaders and inform your peers. What's exciting you about finance and business today? I think the thing that's exciting me now is the, you know, the, obviously the economy is strong in a lot of ways. And, and by the way, just see my comments earlier about being honest with what is and is not working is so important because when things are good, you, it's, it's easy to just be, just be so optimistic and, and not be prepared for, for hiccups. Um, I think what's exciting for me now is communication is allowing us to become 
it's communication is allowing everyone to know what is working. Things like podcasts are allowing people to learn best practices, and so there's a compounding effect of success becoming more success, and, and not just for the individuals, but for kind of everybody who gets the opportunity to listen and, and learn from each other. Um, I think that sharing, not just nationally but globally, is super exciting because you know through through the communication and through our technology. There could be somebody that's starting a business in a, in a third world country that's going to that's going to change their lives, and they're and they're learning from from some CFO sitting in his office in Manhattan, and that is just a really cool thing um, about the direction the world's going. Um, and as, as we're seeing, technology is also um, I don't know if it's kind of democratizing business, but we, we've we've just seen that so much over the last twenty years that that virtually anybody can start something and have it turn to something really big and really important really fast. Um, and that's super exciting. Before you stepped into the office of the CFO for the first time, before you took on the responsibilities, what do you wish someone had told you before you stepped into that office? Looking back now, what is it that piece of information you wish you had? Um... I don't know if it's one thing. I, I, I don't think anyone could have told me one thing that would have necessarily changed me. It, it had to be just a series of kind of compounding experiences and, and reflection. Um, I think that uh, managing managing all the constituencies of, that a CFO manages is a very, a very interesting thing. Um, you know, you're, you're, you're managing... Employees and customers, to some extent, um, debt holders, equity holders, and everybody wants to know the future. And, and you, you, nobody hands you a crystal ball. Um, ultimately, what you're doing is you are trying to manage a message, manage a narrative, and, and balance uh, an optimism with an intellectual honesty uh, in a way that uh, is easier some days than others. And I've been in times in, in companies where things were not good and things were challenging, and you have to manage that message to, to everyone involved. And, and it's easy to get caught up worrying about worrying about your, your equity holders or your bank or your, your own bonus. But you got to walk in the hallway and look at somebody who's trying to pay their rent, and that is a, a hugely important aspect of what a CFO does. And, and, and be honest with it, manage being honest with that person while also being encouraging. And that's been just been a huge part of the role and why I, I, I always come back to you know, the, the leadership I learned in the military, which has been so valuable to me. Do you have a personal habit you believe has contributed to your professional success? Um, I, I think uh, I guess the personal habit is, is kind of I've always um, I've always tried to look at people as individuals, and, it, and, and I've, I've been so delighted with the career path I've taken and the life path I've taken. I've gotten the opportunity to work with people at all levels, at, at all levels in the military. I've had the opportunity to work in, work in factories where I've gotten to work with folks that are on the factory floor, kind of up to CEOs. And you, know, you realize that at the end of the day, we're all people that are, that, that are you know, concerned about paying the bills, concerned about sending kids to college, concerned about uh, their health, uh, which is very relevant to the OGE. Um, and I think that recognition that, that kind of we're all humans and we're always trying to play our part has been has been valuable to me. It just kind of it, it reminds you what matters when you're when you're staring at spreadsheets that that every 
numbers got a bunch of people behind it. Yep. But leader listeners, Brian Lentier is still in the mentoring round. He'll finish answering our questions after we return from providing this message. You want smart, clear, and honest guidance to help you meet the financial goals of your middle market business. With U.S. Bank, you have a partner who will help you find the right solutions to help your organization reduce payment costs, enhance control, improve cash flow, and expand your spend visibility. U.S. Bank's dedication to making ethical decisions and doing the right thing is at the heart of what they do, and their efforts haven't gone unnoticed. They've been named a 2017 World's Most Ethical Company for the third consecutive year by the Ethisphere Institute. To learn more, visit uspayment.com slash middle market. It's interesting. Just to, I asked you for a sort of a specific habit here, but very often our finance leaders answer this, and they provide an answer, which I think in some ways your career roots underscores as well, which is, of course, they'll tell us they're disciplined. And uh, what's interesting, that that is a key characteristic of most finance leaders, and one would imagine that your early uh, career uh, drilled that into you, uh, so to speak. Um, So I just share that. I just think it's a commonality that you share with many finance leaders, despite the fact uh, your background is unusual. Is there a book you'd recommend to aspiring finance leaders? Um, you know, it's probably, it, it, it's probably relevant to uh, my last comment, right? You asked me about a habit of a CFO, and I tell you about uh, walking around thinking about people. Um, it, you know, it's cliche because I think oh, well over 15 million or so many copies have been sold, but I still come back to how to win friends and influence people by Dale Carnegie. Somebody recommended it to me over 10 years ago, and I've, I've read it several times. Because and, and sometimes you, it's a book you kind of need to tune up. And the, the main point of that book is is the reminder that you, you're, you're dealing with people, and people are uh, are emotional creatures. They are um, not rational players. And, and I say it about myself as well as everyone I've interacted with. Um, and people kind of need to feel validated and cared about if they if, if they ever want if, if you ever want to move them in the direction of something you think is important, you have to make it important to them. Um, I've come back to that over and over again. And that's kind of like when I think about leadership, when I think about business discipline, I kind of go back to books like The 80-20 Principle and, and there's been there so many other books kind of that have spun off of the idea of the effective executive, um, things like this that kind of help you um, focus because the hard thing to do with a CFO or a COO or really anybody in a, in a complicated dynamic business is focus. And, and now more than ever, you get 30 emails, uh, an hour, a minute sometimes it feels like. You have uh, a laundry list of things that need to be done that you never complete, helping figure out what are the ones that are going to be most impactful for your business and most impactful for your life and lives of others is just absolutely essential at all times. Okay, our final question. What are your priorities as a finance leader over the next 12 months? Um, I think 
Thank you for listening, and don't forget, Thought Leader listeners, you can now go premium at cfothoughtleader.com.